Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Part autobiography, part social history, Rod Jones's book, The Mothers, traverses almost a century of time, exploring ostensibly the challenges women faced when having children. So, Rod, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much. There are four women in this book, and each one gives us an insight into an era. You've got Alma, Molly, and Anna, sorry, and Kathy. Let's give the listener just an indication of what um, Alma was going through because uh, her husband has deserted her. Can you can the love between husband and wife die in a single day? You think I'm suffering from pride by not going back to him on bended knee. What you are saying sounds very much like pride. When he brought her to the house yesterday, that's when I said, enough. So he did not actually kick you out of the house. Well, he told me I could like it or lump it, so it amounts to the same thing. I will not be his doormat, Alma said. Can't you find it in your heart to forgive him? Don't you see? Once faith is torn, the cloth remains torn forever. Then Alma relented. I'm very confused. My feelings are pulling me in opposite directions. I can't judge which is the right way. Fill us in a bit about Alma. Well, she's... um. Um, a, a woman in 1917, at the time Australia's at, at war, there was um, a, a social struggle g- going on in the um, union movement, and she finds herself um, penny, penniless, um, kick, kicked out, or um, ac- according to her, she's um, um, she walked out because she couldn't stay, um, and um, she ends up in a in in the park sitting on a park bench with her two young children mm. and uh, but she got married when she was 16 when she was 16 very common in those days and then um, basically her husband uh, comes home with another woman uh, yes and basically she what recourse does Alma have well in those days ab- absolutely uh, none um, there were there, there, there was um, no social security av- available. Um, there was charity. There was the um, the churches, and um, and in fact, um, she's re- really um, th- thrown back on the charity of this particular fam- family who who take her in. They've got a spare a spare room, well, a, a sleep out, which was uh, pretty common in those days. The kids would have the um, the sort of the glassed-in veranda or the the jerry-built sort of um, back veranda, and uh, that's where um, the son of the family uh, used to sleep um, before he was killed on his way to the war. And then what this leads to is uh, Molly, who in fact is Alma's bastard child. Yes. And uh, basically she's the offspring of Alfred and um, and Alma, Yes. But then what's Molly's story? 1928. So we've gone from 1917 to 1928. Um, well, it's, it's um, true that Molly was, was born um, in secret 
um, of course the neighbours in the street must have known there was a pregnant girl in there, but um, she um, was kept, kept um, Elma was kept indoors. Um, she wasn't um, allowed to be seen by the neighbours and um, she gave, gave birth with no doctor, no midwife and therefore no um, birth certificate. And no documentation. No for, documentation. For, for, what would happen then to people without documentation? Um, well, um, in, 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 in fact, um, something similar happened to my mother. Hmm. She was born in secret without documentation, and then years later, uh, in the 70s, when she wanted to get a passport... She had no birth certificate. She got married without a birth certificate, but she couldn't get a passport without a birth certificate. Wow. So the challenges of, of sort of being a productive member of society without the documentation and acknowledgement there. You've then got Anna, 1952. There's a sort of leap here, um, but it's a new generation. But Anna, young woman, ends up in The Haven... Uh, because she's pregnant um, and not married. Tell us a little about The Haven and what was going on in 1952 with Anna. Um, well, she was, she was born in the 30s, so she was a child of the Depression, really. Um, work, Working-class parents, West, West Brunswick, and um, she f- finds, finds herself pregnant at the age of 20, and um, she had to be um, smuggled out of the back gate during the night. She, she um, was hidden away from the neighbours as well. This uh, this um, stigma, the social shame, was something that was um, uh, ever present. Right, it's a continuity running running through the decades uh, of the twentieth century. And she was smuggled out the back gate and taken to this Salvation Army home for un- unmarried um, pregnant girls. And it was called the Haven. The Haven did exist. A- a- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And here's an indication of what the Haven was like. Matron's face went hard. Think of your poor parents, but think above, uh, think above all of your baby's future. If he or she is to go to a deserving couple who can give him every advantage in life, who can give him an, an education... She paused a moment, then went on. Look, I feel very sorry for you. We can be friends, can we not? Let's go to chapel and pray together. I'm sure that you'll come to accept God's will. You will come to see the wisdom in what I've told you. So the baby's going to be taken for adoption. And that was the sort of accepted practice of the day. It was the accepted practice of the day. That's right. And really, this uh, religious dogma was there in terms of attitude. Very much. Um, I mean, Australia in the 50s was um, a, a very conformist place. Um, re- religion st- still played a role in society in a way which I don't think it does today. At least Christianity doesn't um, in Australian society. Um, I think that there were um, there, there were strong family pressures on the girls not to have the baby, not to keep the baby, I mean. Mm. And really that, that couldn't change until 
the, the Whitlam government brought in the supporting mo- uh, mother's benefit in 1973. Yeah. And then, just to cap it all off in terms of these characters, you've got Cathy in 1975. And if I can just read a little uh, excerpt there. The landlord was planting a passion fruit vine in the courtyard the morning they arrived. Planting it with an ox heart, he assured them, was the secret to a healthy vine. He asked if they were married and glanced at their hands. Yes, married, David told him. Cathy wore a gold ring that passed as a wedding band. Her belly had not yet begun to show. They signed the lease, paid a month's rent in advance, and the following Saturday they moved into the house. It was around the corner from the Standard Hotel in King William Street. So there's still, even though this is um, a more enlightened era perhaps, yes. the stigma still stands. Well, I, sp- I suppose um, from a real estate agent's <laughs> point of view, um, real estate agents are perhaps not the most so- socially progressive creatures. Um, and probably he just wanted to make sure that um, that they were uh, a, like um, a steady, reliable, reliable source of income. Source of income. <laughs> exactly. So, we're, well, supposedly marriage is meant to provide that um, steady ship. Of course, who knows? But here we have then, in terms of 1917 to 1975 a whole social history of what is taking place and the attitude to women. That was my project, yeah. Um, I, I, I think, we, I mean, obviously we, we see certain changes, um, but there are also certain continuities. Um, I think that each of those female char- characters had to go on a, a journey alone, in a, in a sense, um, even though uh, Kathy had her her partner David live, living with her, it was a very stressful period uh, for both of them. David himself is, um, uh, let's say, a, um, a bit unsteady, a, a fiery, hothead radical, and um, not com- not completely. Um, Convinced of the of the bourgeois um, virtue of marriage, and so th- there was some um, tension between the the two of them. And even though it's in in the um, the Whitlam era, and even though social changes, um, social um, attitudes towards um, unmarried pregnant women were in the process of changing, at, at least. In Fitzroy, perhaps not uh, in in other parts of Australia, but um, uh, there was still a, a sense in which um, in 1975, Kathy had to go through that experience alone. Alone, you've got this nice transition. What struck me was in 1917, it was the notion of charity and kindness from neighbours that helped people survive. You've then got, of course the Whitlam era, so that by um, the 70s, etc., you've got supporting mother's benefit and all of these sorts of uh, changes. Do you think society's lost that sense of charity because of the uh, administrative notion of pensions and support and such like? I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) It just struck me as interesting to see that transition and change and if we have in fact lost 
a sense of charity in the community, which is what is needed in many ways to overcome the loneliness you're talking about. That's that's true on an on an individual basis, but I th- I think that um, that that transformation Australia went th- went through in the post Menzies era, when we when we got um, Medicare, when we got um, um, the universities opened up, um, I think that th- that those basic transformations that happened in our society are here to stay. Um, and you saw what happened la- last year with the Liberals' budget when they tried to um, uh, tamp- tamper with um, Medicare by making that, um, what was it, the $5, $5 G- GP tax. Um, there was such a backlash. It means, um, I think, that things like um, Medicare and a sense of social security are so deeply entrenched in Australian society now, even the Liberals can't take it. Well, thank God for that. I agree. But yes, we need to look at what we can do to afford the society that we would like. It's not a case of budget being the prime concern. It's the community being the prime concern in in many ways. But this leads me on to this notion of a phantom chapter to Mm -hmm. your book, because you go from 1917 to 1975, 2015. Mm. Have there been other changes? Do women still... Uh, give birth alone in many ways. Mm. I think the, you'd, you'd really have to ask a woman the answer to that question. Um, I think that we we all, as human beings, go through the most uh, imp- important uh, experiences of our life alone. It's almost um, a journey through pain, um, which can only be lived alone. There can be hand-holding, there can be professional help, but um, it's almost um, an initiation uh, of a kind, I suppose. Uh, I think that going going through um, the pain of birth must be something which fundamentally can't be shared. And there's this other notion of social values in terms of what is and isn't accepted. You've got Alma being hidden, Molly being illegitimate. Um, Kathy still feels a certain stigma about giving birth even though she's unmarried. Mm-hmm. So you've got that con- continuation of values. What's happening today, do you think? I think I think that um, mar- marriage might have, have snuck back into fashion. <laughs> well, it's been given an impetus by, by the notion of gay marriage and challenging or questioning or thinking about the notion of marriage and what it means. Yeah. The, well, the, the, the first thing to, to be said is that we have um, a 50% divorce rate. So that's an, an immediate um, way of... of Putting what marriage means in the modern world into into a certain context, um, serial monogamy is what we do, as they say, and so it's not this sort of um, compact with God that it might have been in previous generations, in 1917 or in 19, not even in 1952. Well, this notion of God comes through quite clearly in 1917. Um, the passage I read with Alma. 
the torn curtain, very um, a biblical metaphor mm. in mm. many ways. Mm. Molly, uh, oh sorry, Anna, uh, and the salvos, and down on your knees in mm. in penitence for what you've done. That religious sentiment has lapsed slightly. Do you think? I should hope so. I'm, I'm an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> but what values then are here or that we think we must comply to now then in 2015? Um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, th I, th I think that there's, um, there's, there's been mm, that, that there's been a, um, a loss of civil society in a sense. I don't think that I mean, from my own per personal observations, pe people are really not into reasoned discussion so much as they want to sort of join a tribe of opinion and tweet it as fast oh. as they can. Mm. <laughs> Which in some ways makes me think that Alma's generation had more in terms of there was the opportunity for charity and kindness and people gave to each other. But we've got to move on. Um, this is 3CR. You're listening to Published or Not. I'm talking to Rod Jones about the mothers. You talked about pain. You talked about needing to ask a woman that. How were you able to write this book then, a male talking about women giving birth? Well, I, th I think what we do is um, try to use our imagination. <laughs> and I had to... Use some 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 research, some things that people had told me, some of the um, of the submissions to the Senate Select Committee's um, inquiry into forced adoption practices, 2011. I read some of the submissions that heartbreaking submissions that the women had um, had written, including um, about the Haven, and so I was able to do a little bit of of research, but. I mean, my degree was in history, but I'm a terrible historian. I've got to make things up. But there's more than that. If I can use the word empathy, which is the wrong word in terms of knowing and having the same experience, we blokes can't be pregnant, so we can't. But at the same time, you do get into the heads of these women in many ways and look at what they're going through. How are you able to do that? I think it's um, it's a it's a it's a writing a writing problem. I, I, I don't think it's it's a gender problem. I, th I think it's a, a writing problem, and therefore you find writing solutions. And uh, you've um, of, of course of course it's impossible to channel um, someone else's experience, but you can find something in your own personal experience which might correspond to it. So that's one one way of approaching it. There's also the fact that each of these women has a sort of epiphany in many ways. There's Anna who sort of sees the the trees, um, if I can find the passage that I want, and I can read that out. That's right, the leaves on the oak tree moving even though there was no wind. So she's up on the, the, the balcony, and to Anna, God was something felt but seldom seen. But she was seeing him now, she thought. This dancing green light belonged to some divine world, not to the salvos with their sermons and psalms, and she was moved. She concentrated all her attention on that lovely light. She drew it into her body so she could hoard it there and let it nourish her spirit. 
For the first time, she felt that what was happening to her had a purpose. The new life swelling inside her was connected to the same vast, unknowable power that was moving the tree. Each woman, in many ways, has her own epiphany. Yeah. It's a spiritual experience. Not necessarily a religious one, though. It's a, it's a coming to clarity in the subject, in the um, individual person. Um, are coming to, to, to clarity um, at a time when they're confused, when they're going through um, a lot of stress. Um, and in, it's, it's, um, a, it's like the, the, the muddied waters becoming briefly clear so that she can see herself and find a way forward. I mean, Kathy has this notion of the recollection of her mother who passed away very early yeah. in her life and sorting those sorts of things out. Um, I mean, Alma takes a very resolute attitude knowing her situation. So in many ways, all of them go through that moment, so to speak. Was that intended? Hmm... I'm not. I'm. I'm not comfortable with the notion of uh, intentionality, <laughs> because I, I. I find when when I look back on on my books, on my old books from from years ago, I find that the things that I like best are the are the things that I did by accident. Well, yes, when writing, things occur sometimes unintentionally, and they're the they're better than the ones that are planned. I think I think that things all, always uh, occur un, unintentionally, and I think um, that that's why it's called creative writing. We can't do it by formula. Um, some, sometimes, you know, you can get these these books, how to write a, a bestseller, and sometimes I look at them and they say, "Oh, you've got to have something happen on page forty-five, and and you need a, a second act crisis and all the rest of this bullshit," and. Um, in, in, in a moment of weakness, I thought, look, I want to write a blockbuster. So I bought a packet of index cards and laid out the plot um, on, the, on the wall, you know, with blue tack. And as soon as I'd done that, um, I completely lost any desire to write. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, moving on, there is a connection between all of these women. And in many ways, you're part of that connection. What's going on? Well, um, I, I call it an autobiographical novel. Um, the, 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 the basic facts of the three generations roughly correspond with the basic facts of my own um, family background. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to make any, any truth claims for it as autobiography because I've um, improvised as I was going along. I've tried to get into other people's heads in a way in which um, we just can't from a, from a philosophical point of view. Um, I've made up a lot of things. Um, I've changed people's names. Um, and if I were to say, well, that is um, a faithful autobiographical representation of my own family, of my own experience, um, that would be an absurd um, truth claim. So I'm happy to say that it has uh, an autobiographical uh, impetus, but it's a novel. It's a novel. <laughs> we have, just to explain to the uh, listener, Alma gives birth to Molly. 
Molly, uh, then the story sort of jumps. Anna gives birth to a child she calls Kim, but who is then called David. Molly adopts David. Uh, and then Kathy marries David. So that's the connection there. That's that's the, the pattern of the weave. The pattern of the weave of the yes. story. Yeah. But in some ways, not truly autobiographical, but you are David. You were adopted. I was adopted, yes. Um, I was born in the Haven. Um, yes, um, as, as I said, it's, it's, it's based on my own family story. But... Um, you know, about twelve years ago or so, or so I tr- tried to to write or do some life writing. I tried to to write um, autobiographical um, account of, of of my life, and um, failed completely. Failed. Uh, it it was um, very boring writing. It was flat on the page. I I couldn't um, really um, analyze myself with enough distance or you know enough perspective um, I uh, had hadn't sort of worked through a lot of the feelings which I was which I was trying to write about and I found that I need the distance of the novel in, in order to be able to deal with very personal things so do you think you've reconciled anything with yourself through this process no I'm still a man Yes, just that notion then, but it also shifts the emphasis onto the child and the offspring in many ways, from the mothers to the children and the consequences mm. and what children have to go through. Mm. I, I think that um, it's, it's, it's not possible to, to prove in, in any way the effects of adoption on a child. I think from you know, from what we read and other adopted people we speak to, in in general there might be a feeling of differentness of being a bit different, um, but I think I think it's it's not possible to to prove some kind of uh, uh, cause and effect with um, with the trauma of um, separation from the maternal. Um, but in more in more general terms, sometimes, in um, in a psychoanalytic way, ab- abjection is connected with the removal from the mother. Say in Kristeva, for example, um, and so I, in this story at least, I think that David probably went through some kind of ab- abjection, some kind of being cast out. From well, you've you've got that with Molly. There were times when Molly felt that she didn't really belong, either at school or at home. Maybe this feeling came from living in the orphanage. She couldn't be sure. Her name was Fairweather, just like her brother and sister, but there was something different about her. She was blonde, while Olive and Teddy had dark hair. Their skin was darker too. Yes. And Molly had been put into the Dendy Street home in. Brighton, Melbourne Orphanage, the Melbourne Orphanage, right, once yeah. called an asylum. It was called the the uh, Melbourne Orphans Asylum, and um, but done because uh, Alma basically didn't have enough, didn't have the means to support all her children. So these institutions existed. Yes, ab- absolutely ex- existed um, for for some respite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely they they existed 
all all of the um, documents for the Melbourne Orphanage are um, held by the State Library of Victoria, and you need um, to get special permission to access them. And it was opening up these to the public or to the to the children that were adopted that led people to finding their families yes. or finding their, finding their birth mothers. Exactly. Now, unfortunately, we are going to have to end the interview because we've got ruminations wanting to come in. but And there's so much more we could have talked about in terms of that notion of finding your family, finding mothers, because that's how the story ends in some way, you looking for your birth mother. That's right. But the book is The Mothers, the author is Rod Jones, and it's from Text Publishing. So, Rod, thank you very much for coming in today. It's a pleasure. Thank you.